0: This is the third of four episodes about Bauman's 1945 miracle, and miracle isn't my choice of words. It's actually the description that Pierre Bauman shows during an interview, several years after the fact, when he attempted to sum up, in just one word, the incredible story behind the presentation of his house's first collection. We began examining that first Bauman show with a podcast that looked at the daunting list of difficulties that Pierre Bauman faced back then, immediately following the liberation of Europe, when he boldly set out to establish his own house and create his first couture designs. The horrors of the Nazis and that long occupation may have ended, but when Bauman began, it was still a time of scarcity, suffering, and uncertainty. And of course, we ended that podcast with Bauman's impressive triumph, what he called his miracle, which was an astounding feat that he managed to pull off in spite of all the incredible odds and difficulties he had to face. Then for our second podcast, examining the first collection, we turned our gaze away from Baumann's designs and the models in order to look instead at that first presentation's attendees. We focused our attention on a couple that was seated right in the front row, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. We explored that couple's legacy and the strong, lasting friendship that was forged during what Stein summed up as the dark days. The four years that Stein and Toklas had spent in the countryside of Eastern France during the occupation, when their friend Pierre would bike out to see them, bringing them clothes, needed supplies, and a breath of our dear Paris, as Stein was later to write. If you haven't had the chance to listen to those two previous episodes, perhaps you may want to stop now go back and listen to them before beginning this one. Because once again, for today's episode, we're headed back to that same front row of that same first Beaumont show. Because seated next to Alice and Gertrude was their friend, Cecil. Cecil Beaton. Beaton, just like Gertrude Stein, is a bit hard to sum up quickly, since his talents and accomplishments are so many. For those of you who do not know him, perhaps it's easiest just to say that he is a true Renaissance man. He was a writer whose many published diaries give us a comical and cutting inside views of the many of the previous century's great moments and personalities. He was a stage, set, and costume designer responsible for the look of opera, ballet, and Broadway productions, as well as some of Hollywood's most popular musicals, work that ended up winning him two Academy Awards. And he was a painter, an illustrator, a garden designer, an interior decorator. But perhaps most important of all, He's one of the most important figures in the history of photography. Beaton's photographs actually managed to beautifully chronicle many of the massive societal shifts in the 20th century, just as they were taking place. He changed the way people wanted to be photographed, and he helped set the new formula for how leading magazines would rely upon photography. Hugo Vickers, who wrote the authorized autobiography of Cecil Beaton, noted that Beaton advanced the role of the photographer from being a man who arrived at the tradesman entrance to one who arrived at the front door and very often stayed for lunch. And just like his old friends Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, Beaton seems to have known everybody. No, really, everybody. A list of those who sat for Beaton could serve as some sort of Wikipedia index for the most important figures in art, film, fashion, and royalty for the middle 50 years of the 20th century. He basically photographed everyone who was anyone. Artists? Picasso, Warhol, O'Keeffe, Cocteau, Hockney, Bacon, Freud, Nevelson, Dali, and Gilbert and George. Writers? Camus, Colette, Midford, Sartre, Williams, Waugh, Green, Capote, and Eliot. Hollywood stars? Gish, Crawford, Bergman, Wells, Hepburn, both Catherine and Audrey, Dietrich, Cooper, Garbo, Brando, Monroe, and Taylor, with and without Burton. Classical ballet dancers, Balanchine, Nureyev, Martha Graham, and the two Alicias, Alonso and Markova. Political leaders, from De Gaulle and Churchill to Bobby Kennedy. Fashion designers, Balenciaga, Chanel, Chaparelli. Royals, <laughs> countless countesses and duchesses, Indian Maharani, royals from no longer ruling families, including Ottoman, Greek, and Egyptian princesses. But Beaton was also the choice of the British royals, shooting many members of that royal family, beginning with the Queen Mother in 1939. And of course he shot Grace Kelly, as well as her daughter, Princess Caroline. Singers? Garland, Callas, Jagger, Sinatra, Streisand, and Birkin, with and without Gainsbourg. Socialites? Every single one of them, multiple times, because from a very young age, Beaton was always completely devoted to both capturing and being a part of the ever-evolving social scene. Decade after decade, he was determined to capture whoever might be that particular moment's movers and shakers from the Jazz Age's It Girls to the mid-century's Women Who Lunch. And it's those society connections in particular that are important for this part of our Balmont story. Today we'll explore how beaten, after being presented with Pierre Balmain's fresh new silhouettes, what Alice Toklas defined as a new French style, immediately began spreading the news about Pierre Balmain, making sure that all of his society friends heard it first from him, that Paris had a new, young fashion star that they needed to be aware of. Hello, I'm John Gilligan. For today's episode of L'Atelier Balmont, we will return to the house's very first presentation, concentrating on another of the front-row attendees, Cecil Beaton, and his important relationship to the House of Balmont. I am Olivier Rousteing. Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Bienvenue à l'Atelier Balmont.
1: Bienvenue à l'Atelier Balmain.
0: So, returning to Beaton's amazing life story and talents. It's really not surprising that he continues to be a favorite subject of books, exhibits, and documentaries, still today, 40 years after his death. Author and film director Lisa Imordino Vreeland has shown herself to be very much at home with this past century's fashionable greats like Cecil Beaton. Over the past 25 years, she has written books and directed prize-winning documentaries, but some of the most talented forces in art, creation, and fashion in our modern age including Diana Vreeland, Peggy Guggenheim, Truman Capote, and Tennessee Williams. Her third film and her second book, both titled Love, Cecil, focus on Cecil Beaton. One of the many things that Imadrina Vreeland made clear to us when she called in a few weeks ago from New York to contribute to this podcast was that Cecil Beaton was someone who used his creative talent to create his own world to escape to, to reinvent himself, and to finally become the person that he truly wanted to be.
1: I'm really attracted to the idea of reinvention, and Cecil Beaton embodied every aspect of the idea of it. And this is especially when I'm making films, and you know, the 20th century is rich with so many influential and creative characters. Yet Beaton found his own path and created his own niche in history. You know, he knew the world he wanted at a young age and created it for himself. And when I started the process of research for the feature documentary film I made, Love, Cecil, I frequently returned to the same question of Beaton about how could somebody like that be so versatile and proficient at so many different art forms. He was a consummate artist, freely crossing over so many different artistic fields with a facility that is rare even today. And his drive was powered by his imagination. And he seemed, you know, perennially on the move, improving himself and looking for something new. And, you know, I discovered at the very end that, you know, Beaton, for Beaton, life was really a stage, that he felt that he could completely create a stage for himself, which was his life, and he created for everybody to become part of it. And this was something that was so deeply rooted in Beaton, because let's not forget that from a young age, he knew he wanted to be something else. And this goes back to this idea of reinvention. You know, he always felt consistently throughout his life that he had very little talent, but his little talent embedded with a lot of ambition is really what and made him advance so much in life. know he had this omnivorous drive and it was really difficult to understand where for him his life in art stopped and where his real life began. John Freeman in his you know famous BBC talk show series uh, Face to Face when he interviewed Cecil Beaton, Beaton said I wanted to be able to demonstrate that I was not just an ordinary person and I think that is just so much the root of who Cecil Beaton
0: was. In England in the 1920s one could spot the beginnings of new possibilities of social mobility that would have been unthinkable before the First World War. And Beaton, born into a comfortable upper middle-class household, was determined to rely on his artistic talents and his larger-than-life personality to further his burning ambition to become part of the world that he was drawn to, the fashion, glamour and gilded lifestyle of the youthful aristocrats and celebrated socialites of England's highest upper classes. Beaton was a key part of 1920's bright young things. This carefree and privileged small group of young aristo-bohemian friends led the most glam life possible. It was a life filled with glittering frivolity, all-night dancing, and a whole lot of cocktails and drugs. They've been summed up as being the reality stars of their day. Many had no real need to work due to their inherited wealth and privilege. Their fame was guaranteed by the newspaper society columnists who were hungry for pretty images and juicy gossip. So Beaton made himself a member of the bright young things, and he was one of the few middle-class interlopers who was actually able to cross over class lines and he also became the more or less official photographer of this ephemeral grouping of hedonistic young and affluent Brits. Beaton's now famous portraits of that moment capture the bright young things inventive and ultimately empty world of nonstop performances and elaborate role playing. And as Imordino Vreeland makes clear, Beaton's entry into the bright young things was a pivotal moment in his career.
1: I think most people know that you know Cecil, Beacon from a young boy, wanted to be. He had this pursuit to be in a higher social class. He all of a sudden realized by age eight that you know he, you know, he didn't want to go into the timber business like his father, and he had other uh, visions of what his life should be. And from a young um, age, he decided to pursue this on his own, and he was sending in these. Portraits that he would take of his sisters and his mother into different social magazines, and he felt that that was all part of the uprising, and he had to really have a hand in all of that to make to be successful. And when he did the bright young things, which uh, when he was welcomed within this group, it was such an important moment for him. You know, the the most important figure uh, was Stephen Tennant, and when Stephen Tennant. Befriended Cecil Beaton, he really felt that his life was going to take off, and in fact, it really did because it not only took off socially, but it took off creatively because all of a sudden, Beaton was being commissioned all of these portraits, and you know these these are these really wonderful portraits of all these different personalities. But it was this was a really pivotal moment in his life, and um, and it was something though that. It was pivotal for many reasons, but you know, let's not forget that the bright young things was really. they were people from important British families they had money they didn't have to work. Beaton was very different from that because he had to work and it was. He didn't have the luxury of having country homes, so this also, unfortunately, I think, promoted this sense of this insecurity and of just not feeling good enough and being an outsider, and um, and this really um, was something that would plague him for all of his life. Um, but it didn't stop him because you know, as as hard as he worked. He also played hard and he felt that his, that they both should have equal value in his life. But let's, you know, the bright young things in this period of his life was really important because this helped instill this idea that he was the ultimate connector to people. And this is really where all the seeds were planted for that.
0: Beaton's lifetime drive to connect and create was ultimately one of the reasons that he was able to leave behind such a legacy. That drive helped build his incredible reputation, drawing more and more the famous and connected toward him, since many seemed to believe that Beaton could reflect and perhaps strengthen their aura of glamor as well as their social standing. His chronicles and portraits of the social life to which he was devoted remain fascinating today because he was always determined to capture each subject's unique charisma and spirit. Beaton, as Lisa Martino Mardino really documentary makes very clear, was a chameleon. He seemed to possess that extra bit of intelligence needed to always be among the first to recognize the distinctive spirit of each new age, pushing him to find the undiscovered talents and to change with the tides. This allowed him to produce work that defined each of the many decades in which he was actively shooting.
1: In another interview that we used in the film, Beaton said, certain people give up their life to aestheticism, and this is exactly what he did. You know, he used his creativity as a calling card to the most important personalities of the 20th century, whether it was Audrey Hepburn, Pablo Picasso, Winston Churchill, the Queen of England, or even Mick Jagger. You know, let's remember that he had a." career that spanned 50 years and it's it was five of the most important decades if you think about what was going on in the world then and his camera became this passport into so many different lives and then his diary entries that he made became the historical records of the time and for me this really revealed um, so much of who he was and what was great about the research process of the film is that all of this material exists in these incredible archives that are housed at the v at the Sotheby's, at the Cecil Beaton Studio Archive, and at St. John's College and the Imperial War Museum. And that, if you think of what Beaton created during his lifetime, you know, he was incessantly working. He was this huge creative force. And he published 38 books in his lifetime he wrote 150 diaries those were the amount of diaries with all of his entries he had 90 scrapbooks and then he had thousands and thousands of photographs not to mention my fair lady gigi and the ballets that he designed but you know he was he was ultimately you know through all of this work he was a connector and he was a connector of people and he played he was played the center stage in all of that
0: Above all, as Imadrino makes clear, Beaton lived for and was dedicated to beauty. And throughout his long career, you can clearly see that. From his very beginnings to when he was shooting the portraits of the bright young things, in his earliest work for Vogue, and in his beautiful World War II-era photos that he took for Life magazine and for the British government. And then, of course, in his long and incredible post-war career.
1: You know, whether it was through the pages of Vogue or drawings that he made for himself or for Vogue, different Vogue magazines, or photos of soldiers during World War II or through portraits that he took of socialites or the literary and creative forces of the 20th century, one can clearly see Beaton's hand at work. You know, he lived for beauty and created a world beyond... World that's built upon that idea, whether it was through any of these different mediums, whether it was through the photography or the drawings or the costume designs. You know, he was, you know, and ultimately he was an aesthete and a dandy, and his style was all persuasive of that. You could find it in his homes, and all of his work reflected the same level of style and taste. And He, you know, what we witnessed through his work and through the style of his work is this dream of what he thought life should be and how he transformed it. And what I loved about his work is that he transformed it and he allowed us as the viewers to be part of it. Um, You know, I I remember in the process of making Love Cecil that I was interviewing Mr. Blanick. And he told me Mr. Bronick was quite close to Beaton and Diana Cooper uh, toward the end of their lives. And uh, Beaton, he asked, he was in conversation with him one night and, and Beaton said, you know, you know what the most important word in the dictionary is? And my, of course, Mr. Blahnik said, no, and the word was beauty. So beauty for him was the most important word. and. Think about what an incredible dream and privilege it was to be able to live a life where your most important priority was pursuing the quest for beauty in everything you did. So it's, it's a thought that I often think about beaten.
0: Okay, so once again, let's return to the 1945 presentation of the very first Balmain collection where Beaton was seated in the front row next to his friends, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. It's no surprise that he was there, since Cecil Beaton had a very long relationship and deep friendship with the couple.
1: It was really remarkable because um, Beaton and Gertrude Stein really overlapped in so many different ways. They first met in 1926 in a social setting organized by Edith Sitwell, and... Um, Edith Sitwell, of course, would play a very pivotal role in Gertrude Stein's life because she would arrange Stein's first lectures that took place in 1936 at Cambridge and Oxford. But, you know, there was a milieu that Beaton was a part of, and of course the milieu included Edith Sitwell and her two brothers, Lord Gerald Berners, Pavel Chelechev, Uh, Francis Rose uh, and then in Paris Bébé Berard and Jean Cocteau and this was all this kind of very insular world Mm -hmm. that they became a part of together and um, the way that you know Beaton also he photographed Gertrude Stein and Alice Toadless four times but you know what was even more remarkable was this was this friendship that developed between Cecil Beaton and Gertrude and Alice. You know, there were lots of letters that were written and I actually had a chance to read a lot of those letters when I was doing the research for Love Cecil. Um, And there was, it was an exchange and it was, you know, they, they validated each other, they were concerned for each other and there was a lot of thoughtful writing that Beaton. You know, he was very concerned for them during the war. he hadn't heard from them. there was a, a gap of three years that of course that you know no letters were received, no letters were sent out. But you know there's an important stylistically in the photographs that Beaton took of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Tokus it's important to understand that you know they were not glamorous like most of Beaton's typical subjects and um He wanted to, you know, I I guess more than anything, Beaton could not see Gertrude Stein without Alice B. Toklas. He wanted to capture the affection and love that they had for each other. You know, this was not his typical approach to portraiture. He wanted to photograph them as a couple, and he really wanted to articulate the relationship they had. And you can see this kind of love and trust that they have for each other through his images, which is really not typical of, of his work. You now, I would say the you know the last portrait, which was done in 1945 at their apartment, um, saint christine was really, you know, you could see the war, the effect that the war had on Gertrude. And um, she was also very sick at the time. Nobody knew that, of course, Um she she was lost very quickly, and within two weeks that she was diagnosed, she was gone. But you can see that there's a sadness. There's just the fact that, you know, there were the wear, the physical wear that the war had on both of them is really seen those, in those images.
0: Einstein's infamous narcissism seems to have been perfectly matched by Beaton's own very difficult personality. As anyone who has ever read Cecil Beaton's diaries knows, he could be quite a snob, and he possessed quite a sharp tongue. He could be so mean-spirited that, in fact, John Cocteau famously summed him up as malice in wonderland.
1: There's another characteristic that both Beaton and Gertrude had in common. They tend to lose friendships. They tend to get into... Uh, you know, just misbehave in some way, and they they both had the habit of making enemies throughout their lives, you know. But Beaton, for Beaton it was really over his insecurity, and okay. he just never felt good enough. And for Gertrude Stein, it was the opposite, because she always felt that she was grander than everyone else, but this was just a funny similarity that I found in their personalities.
0: So, Gertrude Stein and Cecil Beaton, already world famous for their talents, their connections and their tempers, were seated side by side in the front row at Balmont. And post-show, the two would soon be collaborating on Stein's first and only fashion review. It was an article for Vogue, which, as we mentioned in our last episode, praised Balmont's new spirit while highlighting the friendship that had grown between Toklas, Stein and Balmont during those dark days of the Nazi occupation and the Vichy government. Stein's headline in bold text took up half of the left page of the two-page Vogue spread. The title, in a mix of French and English, read Pierre Balmain, New Grand Succès of the Paris Couture Remembered from Darker Days by Gertrude Stein. It was framed by a small portrait of the very young Pierre Balmain, as well as three black-and-white sketches by Beaton of designs from the new collection, There was a dinner suit with a red petticoat, a dress in striped taffeta, and a sketch that highlighted the designer's unique low and square neckline. On the facing page, set above Stein's text, was a half-page photo of one of the most popular looks from the collection, Balmain's stylish and unexpected, luxurious riff on the traditional Varouze top, something more typically worn by sailors from the Brittany region of France, but which Balmain had given a jeweled neck band, and patch pockets. It was paired with a very slim, very elegant, long black sheath. But that article was not going to be published for another few months, in early December. Well before that, in fact, almost immediately after the show, Beaton went to spread the news of his new Balmain discovery to some of those who mattered most to him, his society friends. Cecil Beaton had a long relationship with a new and important force in Paris's emerging post-war social scene. Lady Diana Cooper, the aristocratic wife of the new British ambassador Duff Cooper, was an old friend of Beaton's. Beaton had adored Cooper ever since he passed around the street in London in the 1920s, as Imadrino Villan tells us.
1: So Diana Cooper was the daughter of the Duke and the Duchess of Rutland, and she was, you know, a, a legendary society figure and she was also a great beauty and an actress she had all the qualities that Beaton loved and they had a lifelong friendship this was she Beaton never had a falling out with Diane Cooper she had all the qualities he loved and even in 1923 he remembered seeing her on Bond Street enter a bookstore and he went running in to see what she looked like and very quickly befriended her but he was it was an instantaneous rapport and you know when she then married um, Duff Cooper and became the ambassadress in Paris it was you know perfect because then their life their social life continued and social connections continued uh, but I, there was a wonderful quote that I wanted to read here that it says, this is Beaton's, um, in one of his books, he said, the first time I saw her, I gasped that anybody could be so serenely beautiful. I had not known that such a complexion was possible. And I did not realize that here was not only the most lovely young lady of fashion, but here also was a Greek triad with the vine leaves and jasmine taken from her hair. Here indeed was a beauty incarnate." I think that really tells us exactly what um, his passion and friendship was for her.
0: So Duff and Diana Cooper were at the center of a new hotspot for artists, designers, and socialites in Paris, the British Embassy's Salon Verne. Lynn Yeager, the CFDA award-winning journalist who spoke to us a few weeks ago about Paris fashion before and after the liberation, also has some thoughts to share with us today about the French capital's post-war social scene, in particular, the Coopers' famed salon at the British Embassy. Lynn, what kind of background information can you share with us about Diana Cooper?
2: Okay, well, first let's set the scene. There's quite a wild history of the British aristocrats and the wild ways they lived. Diana Cooper was the illegitimate but recognized daughter of a Duke, the Duke of Rutland so she was officially Lady Diana Manners until her marriage, and she was considered that age's great beauty. I mean, contemporary pictures might not bear that out, but she has a certain something. She was also incredibly wealthy, and that always helps. Her family controlled many coal mines, as well as 65,000 acres of land and Beaver Castle, one of the grandest residences of the UK. In her youth, Diana Cooper was known as the most beautiful girl in the world. She was a popular actress, she was actually in a play called The Miracle, where she played the Madonna, and as I understand it, she just stood there, but she was huge, usually successful and toured in it. Um, She's said to have inspired characters in at least half a dozen novels by authors such as Evelyn Woe and Nancy Mitford. The press of the time loved her, seeing her not only as a great beauty, quote-unquote, but also an amazing style orbiter, known for her incredibly distinct manner of dressing. She loved to flirt with all the rich boys of her generation. She was part of a pre-war group of well-connected young Brits known as the Coterie, and all the boys in the Coterie seemed to have written dozens of letters proclaiming their undying love for her. But before the war, she was restless and daring and in no hurry to settle down. She rejected her parents' attempt to marry her off to a royal. Throughout her life, she seems to have always been aware of her lack of formal education and often seemed to have found herself stupid or uninteresting. Many of those girls, I'm quite a Mitford scholar, and many of those girls were educated at home and were very, very unevenly educated. All of her suitors, however, seemed to be drawn to her beauty and her personality. She was described in the press as a person with an extra dose of life. And of course, money always helps with that extra dose of life. But most of her young admirers were drafted and killed in the First World War. One suitor was not sent to fight in Europe, Duff Cooper, Who, since he was working in the Foreign Office, was kept from being sent across the Channel. The young Duff Cooper, who was still alive, was also notorious for his drinking, his gambling and his womanizing. He didn't have enough money to be acceptable to Diana Manor's parents, but he was brilliant and relentless and he was able to win her over. When the war ended in 1919, they married. Duff Cooper, later named the Viscount of Norwich, Was a firm ally of Churchill and during the war he had been the British representative to the French Committee of National Liberation, based in Algiers and led by de Gaulle. Once Paris was liberated, Cooper was assigned by Churchill as the first British ambassador in Paris after the liberation. Duff, Diana, and their young son all went to Paris to reopen the embassy.
0: So what about Lady Cooper's time when she was at the British Embassy in Paris? From what I can see, she always seems to have been in the absolute center of absolutely everything, right?
2: Well, I know we started on this podcast talking about the relationship that Pierre Bauman had with Gertrude Stein. And of course, Stein was a poet, a writer, and a feminist. But face it, her material can be rather hard to read. What we really remember Stein for is the amazing salon she and Alice Toklas hosted at their home on 27 Rue de Fleurus and later at 5 Rue Christine. And really, how can you not be in awe of that salon with a guest list that mixed every great European artist of the early 20th century Picasso, Matisse, Juan Gris, Brock, Henri Rousseau with the lost generation of America's best young writers Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Sinclair Lewis, Thornton Wilder? Those evenings must have been incredible. Post war, There emerged another space that was known for its incredible evening, Lady Cooper's Evenings at the British Embassy. The British Embassy in Paris on the Rue de Faubourg-Saint-Honoré, very close to the American Embassy and the LSA Palace, where the President of France lives to this day, is an impressive and beautiful structure. It is definitely one of the world's most impressive embassies. Its official name is the Hotel de Charost, and it had once been owned by Napoleon's sister Pauline Borghese before being taken over by the Duke of Wellington after he defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Since then, it's been the British Embassy for over 200 years. Let's remember that Lady Cooper, whatever you can say about her, remained a true socialite. Nothing seems to have been more important to her than socializing at parties. When she was installed in the Embassy, she turned part of her private living quarters, the Salon Vert, into the place to be in post-war France. Well actually, her space didn't face a lot of competition. It was cold in Paris and there was little heat. The embassy was one of the few warm places you could go. It also had access to another dear commodity, an unlimited supply of alcohol. Because of that, the Salon Vert seems to be full every night.
0: (laughs) So Lynn, who were the people coming there every night to hang out with Lady Cooper and her crowd?
2: Well, if you're looking for the types of writers and artists and assorted smarty pants that Stein would host, you're gonna be a little disappointed. There were, of course, a lot of talented people, but few seem to have been close to the level of Hemingway and Picasso. The post-war embassy evenings welcomed the Coopers' aristocratic rich and socialite crowd. Beyond the socialites, there were a lot of popular writers, painters, and actors, of course. Jean Cocteau and Christian Barard, the two great arbiters of post-war fashion, seemed to have showed up almost every night. Maybe it was the free alcohol. Visiting Brits and American aristocrats and socialites were always welcome, and you can be sure that whenever Cecil Beaton was in town, he was going to stop by. Duff Cooper was a serial womanizer. He seems to have had affairs with almost every one of Lady Diana Cooper's friends, and she seems to have known all about each and every one of them, and not particularly care. Not only does it appear that she didn't care about her husband's cheating, she remained devoted to him until his death, She often became amazingly good friends with her husband's mistresses. In fact, there was gossip that this libertine atmosphere of these evenings extended to speculation about who was involved with whom. One particularly long-lasting liaison of Dove Cooper was the one he had with Louise de Villemorin. She was a well-known French poet and writer, and she came from a very wealthy family. Before Cooper, she'd been involved with and married to many famous and rich European and Americans. And after all, her last lover was the famous French poet, resistance fighter, and French cultural minister, André Melraux. So I think we can say that Louise kind of really got around. During the years that Duff and Diana were stationed in Paris, Louise would stay at the embassy for long periods of time. The Cooper's son, the writer John Julius Norwich, who once described De Moron as one of the most fascinating women I have ever known, explains that she functions as the queen of his parents' popular evenings.
0: So Lynn, when Cecil Peaton heads over to the Salon there after the Balmain show, he's basically bringing news of Paris' new star designer and all how he feels about that incredibly successful first presentation to some of his society buddies, like the Coopers, Christian Barat, Louise de Vlemoron, and all of the other well-connected friends who might be there with them, right?
2: Yes, just like Beaton, they all seem to get interested very fast in making sure that all their society friends learn from them about Bellman as well. So soon, with the urging and planning of his new BFFs, Lady Cooper and Cecil Beaton, Pierre Bauman was sent on his way to London to meet the Aristos royals and society fixtures that Cooper and Beaton felt that Bauman simply had to know. It's interesting to note that in addition to being the center of her new Salon vert social circle, there's another thing that Diana Cooper seems to have really loved about her new position as Britain's Parisian ambassadress. It gave her the power to come home wearing all the new couture creations that almost all of her London friends had no chance of buying because the real tragedy of the Second World War was that it was difficult to get these clothes. When she returned to England, she made sure to be all decked out in the latest Parisian hat, sense and couture. For most of her British friends, even if they somehow had the available cash, there were very strict currency restrictions imposed after the war, they had a very tough time purchasing Parisian couture. While the situation may not have been as bad as across the channel, the post-war economy in Britain was far from great, and most women in London really couldn't dream of paying full price for the luxury of a couture import. And may I just say that most women in London were not worrying about the luxury (laughs) of a couture import, but there some were, and these are the ones we're discussing today. (laughs) I mean, obviously, it was already expensive enough, but the addition of new, very steep set of post-war import duties in Britain pushed prices even higher. Nancy Mitford was pretty straightforward about her own ethics-free solution. In order to escape any customs duties, she suggested selecting dresses in Paris and arranging them to be brought over in the bag of some Mm. South American diplomat. And that, as I understand it, that was known as a diplomatic pouch. Uh, Most others were forced to find other ways of wearing the latest fashions sewing their own outfits using British textiles and Vogue patterns, or selecting from the licensed couture copies that were produced by London stores like Liberty of London. But the common complaint among all the ladies who continued to lunch was that any British produced copies were far from ideal. Since they clearly weren't relying on the best fabrics, and most importantly, they couldn't match the quality of a Paris creation, simply because the craftsmanship could not possibly be at the same level. And Nancy Midford, in her w- wonderful book *Love in a Cold Climate*, actually talks about this and about how their little local dressmaker whips up their creation for the debutante ball, and how and what what pale copies of the originals they were. Hmm. But people still love to dream. And anyway, all of the London witchy riches seem starved for some Paris couture after so many years of going without due to the war. And again, may I say that the tragedy of the war, I cannot overemphasize how terrible the situation of being deprived of couture really was. The Indian Cooper seemed thrilled with their discovery of the new star of the couture. And they made sure that they were going to be the ones that got to introduce Pierre Bellman to their circle of couture-hungry London society friends.
0: So, how did Pierre Bauman's trip to London go?
2: Well, it looks like Beaton and Cooper arranged for him to be invited to the premiere of their friend Vivian Leigh's newest film, and then to the post-premiere dinner party afterwards, where Bellman writes that, "...the members of the highest strata of society crouched on cushions at the feet of Lady Diana Cooper, and listened overwhelmed to Francis Poulon playing the piano score of his ballet Les Biches." In London, Uh, Balmain spent a lot of time at the Dorchester Hotel, a lovely place to spend time, I I (laughs) might add, where many of the upper class had relocated during the war because of the hotel's faint safe and comfortable bomb shelters. (laughs) (laughs) Longing for couture and a safe and comfortable (laughs) bomb shelter. What a way to sit out the war. He would meet Beaton and Cooper's friends in Lady Cunard's suite, which was filled with Marie Laurencin paintings, the same artist who had painted one of Gertrude Stein's favorite portraits of her dog, Basket. Beaton also introduced Bauman to the Duchess of Kent and got him tickets to the revival of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan, which was that season's big theater success, and for which Beaton had designed the costumes. In London, Bauman was also introduced to Daisy Fellows, the half-American, half-French socialite, heir to the singer's sewing machine Fortune, and Paris editor of Harper's Bazaar. Daisy had been the epitome of chic before the war when Beaton and others celebrated her as a style icon. And speaking of, for myself as a style icon, it's a wonderful thing to be. Her great wealth allowed her to be always covered with an amazing quality of jewels. Me too. And her distinctive <laughs> personal style inspired Chanel and Scaparelli. Well, maybe not in my case. In fact, Scaparelli claimed to have invented the color shocking pink just for her, and Daisy liked to wear it often.
0: So Daisy Fellows, she was a half-American heiress, and she's also a half-French aristo, but she's also a fixture in London society as well?
2: Yes, yeah, she got around... She married into British society after her first husband, a French aristocrat, died. The salacious rumor, which the Daily Mail uh, was very happy to share and reprinted a few years ago, was that Daisy had caught her first husband, the Prince Jean de Proglie, a lot of princes here, in bed with the chauffeur. And whatever the truth may be, it looks like that first marriage had probably already fallen apart by the time the prince died of the Spanish flu in 1918. Because, although she might have remained married to the prince, it looks like Daisy managed to have a whole lot of fun, even before she became a merry widow. Hmm. She had a few scandalous affairs before marrying her second husband, the Honorable Reggie Fellows. Reggie was rich, a banker, and the son of the Baron de Ramsey. That meant that he was related to Winston Churchill, through the Duke of Marlborough. And we should note here that Daisy had been very intent on having an affair with the young Winston before she settled on his cousin. In any case, Churchill seems to have demurred. And even after the second marriage, Daisy continued her series of affair, and among her lovers was, big surprise, Duff Cooper. Daisy was one of Duff's many mistresses. They are said to have enjoyed a 17-year-long affair. And of course, Diana Cooper seems to have known all about it, and as she normally did... She became even closer friends with Daisy once that affair began. In fact, Daisy famously gave Diana this priceless advice on how to guarantee that her many social gatherings were always a success. We're going to share this with you today so that your social gatherings will always guaranteed to be a success as well. According to Daisy, the secret of a good party was to just pour some Benzedrine into the cocktails, darling. For our younger listeners who may not know what Benzedrine is, it's an amphetamine but you could substitute <laughs> any kind of upper you like to follow this (laughs) advice but don't because that isn't nice and it's totally illegal and we don't do (laughs) (laughs) and whatever other extracurricular hobby she might have been dedicated to in england daisy was clearly better off staying in london with her benzedrine cocktail and her benzedrine friends after the war had ended back in post-liberation paris her daughters were not faring quite as well One daughter, Emmeline, was in fact sentenced to prison for her collaboration with the Nazis during the war.
0: Hmm. Another
2: daughter, Jacqueline, had an Austrian husband who was accused of betraying members of the French resistance to the Nazis. So Jacqueline, who, get this, claimed to have no idea that her husband was a spy, (laughs) ended up facing a much quicker judgment and sentence than that of Emmeline, the Epration Sauvage, the infamous post-war mob pursuit and retribution against wartime traitors. Jacqueline had her head shaved publicly by angry Parisians who were more than ready to hunt down and inflict swift, brutal punishment upon all those suspected of collaboration with Nazi occupiers. Oh, those naughty daughters. (laughs) They should have opted for the Dorchester and those comfortable bomb shelters Hmm. with a Benzedrine cocktail. But no, (laughs) they were probably ensconced in the rich with some of those other people.
0: So can you tell us if Pierre Armand managed to land any interesting commissions while he was in London?
2: After the great success of his first show, Bellman's new fame helped him led one of the most coveted new commissions of post-war London. He was hired to create the fabulous wedding dress and bridesmaid gown for the marriage of the season, the London wedding of one of the it girls of the moment, Stella Carcano, to the Viscount Ednam. The Viscount's real name was William Humble Ward. I don't know how humble he was, but <laughs> anyway. But everyone just called him Billy. Billy was also a godson of the Duke of Winter and was destined to become the Earl of Dudley once his father died, which would eventually give him a hereditary seat in the House of Lords and make him one of the wealthiest people in Britain.
0: Who was Stella Carcano?
2: Stella Carcano e. Mora, also known as Baby, <laughs> but like me, um, was, along with her sister Anna, also known as Chiquita, was one of the great beauties of 1940s London. Their father was the Argentine ambassador, and they came from a lot of money, and they probably had access to a diplomatic pouch. Um, As a 20-year-old, Baby began an interesting friendship and eventually what appears to have been a several-year romance with a very young and handsome John F. Kennedy. Kennedy's father was Franklin Roosevelt's ambassador to London, and John had met Stella when both the Kennedy and the Carcano families traveled to Rome in 1938 for the first mass of the new pope, Pius XII. John Clinton became good friends with Stella's brother, and he also seemed to have at least asked out Stella several times when he was in London, but no one seems very sure if anything really developed there, though they were often spotted at the same social events. Two years later, in 1940, when Kennedy had graduated from Harvard, he made a two-month trip to South America. He was met by the Carcanos in Buenos Aires, and they drove him to their enormous ranch known as San Miguel in Azcachinca which is north of the city of Cordoba in western Argentina, if you were wondering. Kennedy (laughs) celebrated his 24th birthday with Stella and the rest of the Carcanos at their ranch. At some point, these two good-looking young people seem to have started a romance, either in London or Argentina, and it lasted for at least a few years, as is made very clear in Stella's many letters to JFK, which are now part of his official archive at the JFK Library. Even after Baby married Billy and Jack Jackie, the Carcano-Kennedy friendship seems to have continued. And many years later, in 1966, Jackie flew to Asconchinga with her two children, Caroline and John, then eight and five respectively, where she stayed at the San Miguel Ranch for nine days, enjoying the countryside walks and horseback riding every morning. As she later explained, it was at San Miguel Ranch where she felt she was able to finally rest for the first time since her husband's assassination.
0: Hmm. So what do we know about the wedding, Stella Cacano's wedding, and Balman's design for their wedding?
2: Well, remember those currency restrictions and tariff duties that the society's ladies had to worry about? Well, because Stella was the daughter of a diplomat, those restrictions didn't apply to her. She could have all the couture that her heart desired, and she and her family seemed to have desired quite a bit of it. <laughs> so as Pierre explains in his memoirs, her father's diplomatic post in the illustrious family into which she was marrying made this wedding a ray of sunshine in the grey austere London life of 1946 where, you know, listeners should know that there was severe rationing in 1946 in Britain, and you weren't exactly sitting down to a sumptuous meal in your cold water flat. Mm-hmm. And when Bellman brought, but anyway, back to this fabulous dress. And when <laughs> Bellman brought the bride and bride dresses over from Paris, arriving at Victoria Station with an amazing array of enormous boxes, all bearing the embassy's diplomatic seals, it appeared this might have been one of the very first deliveries of Parisian couture creations to cross the Channel since the war had begun six years earlier. For the reception, Stout's family also enlisted Pierre to use those same diplomatic seals to bring them 300-plus bottles of the finest French champagne as well, the type of over-the-top luxury that most in post-war England could only dream of. Not even, okay? (laughs) Um, You know, also for our younger listeners, um, the Beatles, when they were growing up in Liverpool, there was still rationing. I mean, rationing continued into the 1950s. And um, Britain really had a very hard climb out of those war years and back to a prosperous economy. Amazing. So as you can imagine, Bauman's description of this wedding as a ray of sunshine is easy to understand.
0: And what about the wedding dress itself? What did it look like? Could you try to describe it a little bit? I'd be happy to. It would <laughs> amazing.
2: In fact, it is so extraordinary and beautiful that it's now part of the V&A's permanent fashion collection. Beaton, who had photographed Stella and her sister before, made a beautiful sketch of Stella in this newest Balmain creation, which Bauman described in his memoirs as a magnificent robe of white veil with the top quilted in diamond shapes and richly embroidered with pearls. There was also a matching embroidered silk pillbox hat with a long veil and Stella also carried a large ermine muff. It was a winter wedding and London's Brompton Oratory could get a little chilly. Everybody's apartment was a little chilly. Nobody had,
0: heat.
2: <laughs> Nobody had central heating. Just saying. So you know what? An ermine muff. Everyone in London should have had an ermine muff because it was quite chilly there. In, in your house. <laughs> Even when I was there, as a young woman, I remember being there and typing with gloves on in the house. Really? Because I was not staying at the Dorchester.
0: <laughs> in the Just bomb them. shelters, yes. Yeah. And meanwhile, back in Paris, the members of the Salon Vert also began spreading the Balmain message across the French capital to both their artistic friends and their socialite pales. Today, of course, we know that Olivier Ristong designs for Balmain are a favorite of actors and singers. And in 1945, the Salon Vert members helped make sure that Pierre Beaumont started building the same sort of rapport with the leading stars of his day. First of all, Louise de Vimleron, the French poet and writer who was Duff Cooper's mistress and the queen of the evenings at the Salon Vert, definitely seems to be someone who impressed Pierre Beaumont. In fact, his 1948 collection was actually inspired by her, Christian Barat, The famous painter and set designer, who was also a fixture at the Salon there, also immediately reached out to Pierre Ramon to see if he would be interested in helping design the looks for some of his big French film and theater productions that Barat was working on. Barat also began sending some of the star actresses of the day over to 44 Rue de Francois Premier, including Josette Day, who was then filming her role as Belle in Cacto's legendary La Belle et la Bête. The French actress Simone Simon who was very famous for his starring roles in many pre-war classic films from legendary directors like Renoir and Ophuls, had recently returned to Paris from her U.S. exile during the war, and she negotiated an exclusive contract with Balmain to dress her. But perhaps most notably, a young and beautiful talented singer from Paris's left bank, Juliette Greco, selected a simple and tight-fitting black Balmain dress to wear as she sang. Greco was quickly to become the symbol of the Bohemian post-war Paris of Saint-Germain clubs, and eventually she became one of France's most important 20th century singers. Along with her straight long hair, thick bangs, and heavy black eyeliner, that style of that simple and elegant Balmain dress that she selected formed a key part of her signature look for the next 70 years as she recorded Decade after decade, some of France's biggest hits, her distinctive, very Parisian, and very beautiful look, was actually to inspire the Beatles to write one of their most famous songs, Michelle. And from the moment that Beaton told her about Pierre Bauman's first show, Diana Cooper was to begin what was to become a very long relationship with the house. As we've already heard, she and Cecil Beaton ensured that Pierre Bauman was a hit in London, And Lady Cooper became a Balmain customer as well. She wore the house couture designs for decades. There's one amazing couture gown that Balmain created in 1957, which Cooper wore to a British Embassy dinner in honor of the visit of Queen Elizabeth to Paris. Duff Cooper was no longer the ambassador, in fact he had died a few years earlier, but the new ambassador had made certain to invite Lady Cooper. For that dinner, she wore one of Pierre Beaumont's most beautiful couture creations, a creamy silk design that was covered with embroidered yellow and red roses. Each rose had a long stem, green leaves, and dark red thorns. The top was softly pleated, the bodice was bone, the waist was cinched, and the skirt was voluminous. At the end of the evening, Cooper stayed on with Beaton and the Embassy's union room, until early in the morning as he sketched her in that Balmain creation. That beautiful couture dress is now part of the V&A Museum's permanent fashion collection and it formed a key part in the museum's 2007 Golden Age of Couture Travon exhibit, which brought the very best of Parisian post-war couture to museums all around the world. In fact, that Balmain gown was chosen as the cover image for one of that exhibit's catalogs. And just as in London, Paris's rich society crowd listened to their friends Cecil, Diana, and Duff as they sang the praises of Pierre Beaumont, they quickly started making appointments at the showroom Paris's Paris' newest and youngest fashion star. And as Lynn Yeager points out, one of the first to stop over was a new famous resident of the French capital, a certain American divorcee who had managed to charm a certain king and caused the British royal family more than a few headaches.
2: The Duke and Duchess of Windsor, huh, just saying, had recently <laughs> been allowed to return to Europe from Bermuda. As you may know, the royal family was a whole lot happier than they were going, uh, that they were going to remain in France instead of returning to England. And the Duchess made her way to Balmans' Atelier, as did other fixtures of the 16th arrondissement, like the Contins de Rochefoucauld and Madame Suzanne Montproust, better known as Proust One of the first couture gowns that Balmain sold in Paris was to Gislaine de Polignac who preferred to be addressed as Princess de Polignac.
0: <laughs> so what's the story behind this Princess de Polignac?
2: She's pretty notorious. She really? She's very pretty, rich blonde. She was from Biarritz, and she managed to marry quite well. In 1939, when she was just 20, she married Prince Edmund de Polignac. He was from one of France's oldest aristocratic families and related to the royals in Monaco. But they separated just a few years later, and they finalized their divorce once the war ended. After that, there was a court case with the prince trying to ban her from using that royal title, which he probably shouldn't have had either all those royal titles <laughs> went away after the war. But anyway, he lost the suit and she continued to dine out on that title until she died in twenty. 19- 20- 11 and please call me princess dieger from now on (laughs) her friends described her as a live wire and more than anything else she seemed determined to thoroughly enjoy herself in 1946 she became one of duff cooper's many mistresses are you spotting a trend here cooper described her in his diaries as being a girl after my own heart good company a formidable appetite for pleasure and no nonsense about love after the princess made it clear to cooper that Having gone through a marriage and four kids, she felt she had done her duty and was determined to move on to concentrate on having a good time, Cooper wrote, I have no doubt she will succeed in doing so. I shall do my best to help her. <laughs> After both Paris and she were liberated, Giseline de Dupolonek moved into a ninth-floor apartment at Paris's Hotel Georges V. And it sounds like she did enjoy herself there. Just like Duff Cooper, Gislaine seemed to be able to manage more than just one lover at a time. When he was involved with her, he was also seeing a few other lovers. In addition to his wife, Diana, and the princess, Duff was carrying on long-time affairs with the Mexican socialite Gloria Rubio, who would later become Gloria Guinness, and of course with Louise de Vilmarin. The princess also seemed to be almost as active. In fact, in DuPonac's obituary, the Daily Telegraph indiscreetly disclosed <laughs> that once when Cooper came to meet her at her hotel, she popped out of her room with a finger to her lips and, was obliged, and he was obliged to spend five minutes on the roof while she bade farewell to what, what the newspaper referred to as another
0: visitor. <laughs> so, wow. Um, are there any other, like, of these special society friends of Duff Cooper that we're going to see in the future as we continue to explore the history of Pierre Beaumont?
2: Well, yes. And actually, there's a very famous one, Susan Mary Alsop.
0: Who was she, Susan Mary Alsop?
2: She was yet another beautiful, rich and smart person, an American who came from one of America's oldest families. She was born Susan Mary Jay, And through her father, she was a descendant of John Jay, a founding father and the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Her father was a diplomat and she was born in Rome and grew up in France, South America and New York. Her first husband, Bill Patton, was sent to Paris right after the war to work on the USA's military assistance program for France, and he was involved in the Allies' plans to rebuild France's damaged economy. She lived in Paris with Patton until he died in 1960. In Paris, the U.S. Embassy is set close to the British Embassy, and one rainy night, then-Susan Patton was leaving the embassy and she almost crashed her bike into Lady Diana Cooper. And that near-miss changed her life. Lady Cooper ended up being charmed by her and soon invited her and her husband to the British Embassy dinner. A dinner where Diana made sure to seat Susan next to Duff. Within a year or so, it seems that Susan was Duff's newest mistress, even though he was about 30 years her senior. The two seemed to have usually met for their liaisons at different Parisian hotels. And yes, Diana Cooper, following her now-familiar M.O., soon became the best of friends with Susan. At the same time that Susan was carrying on her discreet affair with Duff, Perhaps it was due to Diana's influence that, just like so many other of Duff's lovers, Susan became a big fan of Balmain at around this time, often purchasing the latest couture from the house. Then, in 1948, Susan found out that she was pregnant with Duff's child. That son, Bill Patton, later wrote a memoir about his mother's elegant deception, was how he put it, which tells how he learned in 1996 at age 47 that his father was Duff Cooper. Well, better late than never. In 1960, after both Susan's husband and Duff Cooper had died, Susan agreed to marry one of her husband's oldest friends from college, Joseph Alsop. Alsop was also from an old waspy family, and he was a very, very powerful man. He was one of the most important journalists of post-war Washington, and during the Kennedy presidency, he had great influence on politics and strategy. The rumor is that Kennedy often relied on the Alsop's Georgetown house for his many triests. Marrying Susan allowed Joe Alsop to hide the fact that he was gay. In that extremely homophobic era quite a few men like Elsa made the decision to rely on beards as they were called like Susan since in journalism and politics at that time being both gay and powerful was a combo that was highly unlikely to work out in Washington Susan quickly remade herself into that capitals version of Lady Diana Cooper frequently wearing couture designs from Pierre Balmain she enjoyed that the Elsop's Georgetown house was the most absolute center of the new social scene in a city that was being completely transformed and energized by the arrival of the young and glamorous Jackie and John Kennedy. And with her amazing style, jewels and couture, Susan definitely offered a clear contrast to the traditional tweedy, preppy look of upper-class Washington. A tweedy, preppy, and boring look, I might add, that endures to this day, if anyone has <laughs> been to be Washington lately. There's not one decent store there, I'm sorry. <laughs> to make sure that she entertained perfectly, in addition to her Parisian jewels and couture, she brought over to Washington the content of her French wine cave, cave as well as her French crystal, porcelain silver, and servants. Her dinner's filled with all the leading politicians, diplomats, journalists, and artists were the settings where bargains were struck and alliances formed, which helped gain her the title of the Second Lady of Camelot. The First Lady of Camelot is Jackie for younger listeners, (laughs) and Camelot was a musical about a mythical kingdom that was on Broadway in the 1960s. And I think later it was maybe a movie. Whenever she was asked her secret was, she'd say that she learned the trick for a successful evening from her friend Lady Cooper. Jeff's given plenty of booze and hope it will go. I guess without the amphetamine added. <laughs> <laughs> when she returned to Paris for a dinner honoring President Kennedy at the LSA Palace, she wore one of her favorite Balmain creations for the occasion. A long, lean and strapless back velvet gown with a matching stole lined in white satin. It's the same couture ensemble that Alsop later wore Truman Capote's legendary black and white ball held at the plaza in 1966. Long after she left Paris for Washington, Alsop remained extremely close to Lady Cooper. They would catch up with each other when Susan traveled to Europe. And in 1963, when Cooper came to visit for two weeks, Susan made sure to seat her next to Jack Kennedy at one of her dinner parties.
0: Hmm. So like wrapping up Balmain's rapid immersion into these highest levels of society... It all started with Cecil Beaton's front row placement and then the trips to London and Paris societies. But then, of course, from the beginning, couture houses have long depended on these society tastemakers in the world's capitals, right? And fashion, especially couture, is, as you made it very clear, always much more accessible for those with the means to travel to Paris showrooms and afford the latest designs. But I was thinking as we were discussing this, it's interesting to think about those early days and review the history of the incredible quick embrace of the house by post-war society and to think about what Bauman is today and how some of Olivier Roustong's, like his most recent collections, offer a very new and distinct take on that mix of society, class, and fashion, right?
2: Yes, definitely. Olivier is definitely very conscious of the relationship between the classes and how that is reflected in fashion. Like every designer, he brings his own personality to his collections. You can't separate the two very easily. In regard to society and class, I think it's interesting just how refreshingly honest Olivier is about everything. He often explains to the press that as a child who grew up in the very bourgeois city of Bordeaux, he was that kid who was always looking in from the outside at a group that wasn't about to open the gates and invite him in. Of course, Olivier has often talked about his background. He was an adopted black kid who grew up in an environment where there were very few people like him. And he seems to have realized early on that because of those differences, there were a lot of doors that were going to be closed to him. He has explained in his interviews how he was always scheming as a child, always thinking about how he could cross over, finally be accepted. And I remember when I interviewed him at the CFDA uh, last year or maybe two years ago it's all a blur he said he told me that he always had to be perfect in everything and that his striving for perfection as a child was was really so uppermost in his mind that he wanted to have perfect grades perfect sports perfect everything Hmm. I guess it was in Olivier's fall 2020 collection when he made the clearest reference to his childhood longings and he did it in a very clever very fashionable way He decided to appropriate for himself all those symbols of the refined upper class that had once excluded him. The signature styles of the upper classes, like those silk scarf patterns, Vichy prints, rich cashmere, and riding ensembles. And for that 2020 collection, he twisted them completely, playing with the mixes, proportions, placements, and silhouettes. And he ended up somehow subverting all those society codes into something that becomes really fresh and modern on the runway. His goal was to take control of what had previously been symbols of exclusion and to refashion them for his inclusive and young Bauman runway and his young Bauman audience. And it worked. In his interviews, he explained how he twisted all those rarefied icons of that closed-off world of wealthy old families and made them very right for a collection that held open doors and open minds of today's diverse streets.
0: So as we've seen, thanks to well-connected fans of his house like Cooper, Elsop, and Beaton, Pierre Beaumont was able to move on from the success of his first presentation to quickly dressing the most powerful tastemakers of the day. The war had changed things, of course, but at that moment, old families, old money, and society still retained a lot of power. Today's Bauman under Olivier Ruston continues to reference and riff on the incredible beauty of Pierre Balmain's earliest creations and those fresh new fashions that so excited the upper class of his time. But Roustong also cleverly appropriates society's codes and signatures for a new modern vision of luxury that speaks to our age and the young, diverse, and inclusive Balmain army that Olivier Rousteing designs for today. In our next episode... We're going to return one final time to Pierre Beaumont's first collection 75 years ago. For that podcast, we'll be exploring an incredible and iconic shooting that developed from that collection, as well as the evolution of mid-century fashion illustrations and photography. I hope you can join us.